0: Male violence, toxic oxygen, and personality tests. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not
0: understand, he'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But i will talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, welcome to another Ask Science Mike, that weekly-ish podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith and life. Really literally whatever you want me to answer, I answer regardless of my utter lack of qualifications to answer any questions at all. <laughs> it's good to be back. It's good to be talking with you all this week. Uh, let's start with a couple of announcements, shall we? Don't hit that forward button. These are good ones. <laughs> Uh, I can see the analytics. I know that every time I start giving announcements, like five to 11% of you just hit skip forward 15 seconds at a time until you're convinced I'm not doing announcements, but, uh, well, okay. There's, there's really just two announcements. One, the normal event stuff, July 27th. I'm going to be in Ontario, Canada for the skylight festival. Um, I'd love to see you there. Just got back from Vancouver. That was a blast. So, I'm excited to see more of you lovely Canadians. By the way, one of the most polite audiences I've ever uh, encountered uh, were my friends in Vancouver. And then, oh, for you folks over in the UK, we're doing the Liturgist Gathering in London, October 5th and 6th, and tickets are on sale right now. You can learn more by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on events. So, that's one. Two. did I say there were two? There are three. Uh, So, two, we're getting ready to do some more liturgist gatherings. Um, So if you're in Portland, Minneapolis, Nashville, Sydney, Australia, or Melbourne, Australia, uh, and you have access to a venue, a church, a concert hall, whatever, and you'd like to host the liturgist gathering, you can. Just go to the liturgistgathering.com slash host dash us and fill out the form and we'll be in touch That's two. Here's number three. And this one is big to me. A little while ago, um, I did a webinar. Yeah, a webinar. How nerdy is that? Uh, And it was called Making Your Mark. And it was for people who want to do public work. Think speaking, books, podcasts, blogging, YouTubing. Literally anything that involves communicating with the public about an idea this is not about being famous. I don't know anything about being famous. I don't care about being famous. But this is if you feel some thing in your body, in your soul, in your mind that says you have something you want to communicate to the world and you can't figure out how to do it. So maybe you can't get started. Maybe you've been trying this for a couple of years and it hasn't gotten anywhere. Maybe you already have a public platform but you're broke and you can't make any money at it. Well, that's why I want to do this webinar. I've learned a lot, one, in 16 years in the advertising and PR business, and two, in the last several years being Science Mike and making uh, the liturgists happen. Uh, So I'd like to share those secrets with people. So this webinar is completely free. It costs zero dollars. And I am also starting... A kind of group coaching class for people who want more in-depth stuff. But uh, we're doing this webinar. We've already done one. It was super long. I forgot to record it. (laughs) So I'm doing another one uh, because people said, hey, did you record that? Over 500 people signed up for the webinar, y'all. And it was super short notice. So this time we're giving you a little more notice. It's June 25th uh, at 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can register by going to mikemccargue.com slash webinar. That's M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E dot com slash webinar. You can register. It's completely free. Stick around to the end for sure if you're interested in group coaching. I'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes about what I think is important going into a platform. My friend Bradley, who's partnering with me in this, uh, he is uh, an executive coach. And he's really good at what he does. Uh, he'll talk a little bit about finding motivation and doing the kind of self-work you have to do uh, to to make an impact on the world. And then we'll just take questions. That's it. That's how it works. I'm going to do these semi-regularly for free. Uh, and then periodically we'll open up new spots on our group coaching program. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can do that. We had a lot of people apply already. Uh, we'll open up applications on this one. We won't be able to take everybody but we'll take you know, the people we can and work out the bugs and then hopefully have something that's open to more people in the future. So that's Making Your Mark webinar, June 25th. Um, I'm really excited about it. The last one was a lot of fun. I mean, people stuck around for more than two hours. This one will not be as long. Uh, try, we'll try to keep this one 45 to 60 minutes for sure. Okay, so that's my announcement. So... Uh, Let's get it started.
2: Hi, Mike. My name's May. We met once and I cried on you, but that's beside the point. My question is this. What would happen to your body if the air you lived in consisted of 100% pure oxygen? Some context... I won't name any names, but I was once in a rather prolific program for young aspiring missionaries, and my class had a speaker who was teaching us about Adam and Eve in the literal Garden of Eden. He insisted that the reason everyone lived such long lives before the Flood was that the atmosphere had a higher oxygen content. He asked the class what would happen if you breathed nothing but pure oxygen, and I confidently said, you'd die. But he said, wrong, you'd live forever. My classmates gave me some pitying looks, but nobody backed me up, and I'm still a little salty about it, which is why I've come to you. The only evidence the speaker used to support his theory is that patients are given oxygen on emergency helicopter rides to the ER. So, what would it actually have been like in this hypothetical oxygen garden? Would Adam and Eve be okay? What about the plant life? Thanks for your work. Much
0: love. A 100% oxygen atmosphere on Earth would be, I think, lethal to pretty much everything on the planet. (laughs) I really, I could be mistaken. There may be some microbial life. I guess ocean life would be fine at first. Depends on how long the atmosphere remained 100% oxygen. A couple of things. One, pure oxygen's incredibly flammable. So any naturally occurring source of combustion, say volcanoes, say lightning strikes, would cause massive sustained atmospheric explosions. That's bad. That's antagonistic towards human life. Also think about plants before we even get to a hypothetical Adam and Eve. Photosynthesis happens because plants use carbon dioxide to get the carbon they need to start producing food, simple sugars, from light. Plants can't survive in a pure oxygen atmosphere. They require carbon dioxide. It it is a requirement. And plants, of course, sit at the base of almost every food chain on Earth. There are some deep ocean ecosystems that are not based on photosynthesis, but based on, you know, outgassing uh, of, of kind of these sulfuric vents, uh, or hot sulfur vents uh, deep in the ocean. But every other food chain on the planet, the vast majority of life here, depends on photosynthesis, and photosynthesis depends on carbon dioxide. The basic premise here is very flawed. Now, what happens to people If you get in a 100% oxygen atmosphere, they get oxygen toxicity. They get oxygen poisoning. You know, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot today, and that is toxins. It mainly gets thrown around in kind of natural medicine woo contexts when you're flushing toxins from your body in a cleanse, which is, frankly, total nonsense. Uh, But toxicity is a specific phenomenon in biology And every substance that I'm aware of has some threshold that it becomes toxic to people. Everything, Uh, including oxygen, including water, the basic necessities of human life in sufficient quantities will kill you. And it's true of oxygen at first. And we noticed this when we uh, used 100% oxygen under high pressure, in medical and space exploration contexts. Pretty quickly, people get acute oxygen poisoning. They have muscle twitches. They can have seizures, blurred vision. They can feel sick, be nauseous. They get really dizzy, have vertigo. These are not uh, (laughs) good things. They happen quickly. If you continue to persist in a 100% oxygen state, you're going to have a problem doing... uh, Gas exchange in your lungs, basically the fact that there's a difference between the oxygen and CO2 concentrations in your lungs at each end of a breath creates um, a natural exchange between oxygen and carbon dioxide in your lungs. So when you're in 100% pure oxygen, over time, you actually have to breathe harder. You can lose something like 20% of the total volume of exchangeable air in your lungs, you have to breathe harder and harder, which starts causing, um, you know, collapsed alveoli in your lungs, and you get these mucus plugs, and it's it's lethal in time. It you know you start coughing a lot, you get fluid accumulation in the lungs. Uh, a one hundred percent oxygen atmosphere would pretty quickly kill all the plants. And I think before the people could starve to death, they would suffer and die from acute oxygen poisoning. Uh, so this 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 teacher was not speaking in any remotely scientific manner. Uh, now, we do use pure oxygen in emergency contexts where people having difficulty breathing. But typically, when you put on an emergency oxygen mask, You're not putting on a spacesuit, right? Normal atmosphere is still getting to your nose and mouth. And so usually the concentrations of oxygen are up to 90%, not 100, which means there's still some nitrogen and, yes, some carbon dioxide, which means in the short term, uh, it makes it easier to breathe. You'll notice in hospitals, uh, typically when people get oxygen, they have... um, like a a nasal apparatus that delivers oxygen into their nasal cavity, but they still breathe normal atmospheric air through their mouth. Uh, And that is to get people the assistance they need, they're having difficulty breathing, getting a higher oxygen concentration. But not 100%, which as we have just discussed, is dangerous and possibly lethal to our species. So no, pure oxygen would not cause people to live long lives It would kill most life on the planet and do so quickly. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Science Mike, I love your show. It's so validating to hear your approach to life. Now, I know you are an Enneagram fan, 5-Wing 4 here, but I think you also know Myers-Briggs. I have in the past found them both To be useful tools. I have always been an INTJ and have found it explains so much about myself and my personality, like why everyone keeps calling me blunt when I'm as diplomatic as I can be. But in the past few years, I have become very ill with fibromyalgia. I don't work anymore, I don't do much. Staying home, I've become more reflective and emotional. I've spent a lot of time working on my emotions while learning to process the grief and loss that comes with being disabled in your 30s. I've noticed that my personality seems to be changing pretty dramatically. Five years ago, I would have tested as an Enneagram 1. Now, I'm a 5 wing 4. Five years ago, I was a solid INTJ, and now I cross just into INFJ. Five years ago, I was about as choleric as possible to be, and now I test as melancholy. All of those have changed for me at a core level, not just because of learned behaviors. Here are my questions. Does research actually support any of these personality typing tools? Does it say anything to changes in personality over time? Is it really important to define oneself within specific types? Or is it mostly just about understanding the concepts and growing as a person? If it is important to know why, how does it really impact life? Well, thank you for your questions. There were a lot there at the end. <laughs> um, you have stumbled upon the great truth of personality tests. They are almost all pseudoscientific garbage. That's, that includes the Enneagram. That includes Myers-Briggs. That includes pretty much every personality test I can recall, save one, which measures you for five uh, temperaments on a gradient, um, and so it does accurately assess your personality scientifically. And the tests are the results are repeatable. It just doesn't tell you anything useful about how to live your life. <laughs> so. Uh, Why are these tests so popular? Why, as a scientific person, do I actually like talking about the Enneagram? Do I talk about Myers-Briggs? Because, friends, we are mysteries to ourselves. Our conscious awareness is such a small part of our life. So not only does the world surprise and confuse and confound us, not only can friends and loved ones confuse and confound us, We can confuse and confound ourselves because we don't understand why we do things. We don't understand why we have different feelings in different moments. And so what personality typing tools do, the reason they're so popular is they give people language to describe their experiences. They give people language to understand how they relate to other people. And in that context... They are helpful in the same way and with the same amount of scientific rigor that knowing which Hogwarts house you belong to is helpful. (laughs) There's nothing scientific about the mythology of the sorting hat, and yet people find it helpful for navigating the world. It is exactly the same, in my opinion, with the Enneagram, with Myers-Briggs, and with most personality tests. They're not based on research. When they have been researched, they have failed to meet the criteria that psychological diagnostic instruments need. The results are not repeatable. They ignore significant components of human psychology. Um, you know, for example, I was reading a piece in psychology today, and one thing psychologists are looking for when they're examining personality is whether you stay calm and collected under stress or pressure or not, and that's one of the most important predictors of individual and group patterns of thought, feeling, and action, according to this article, and that's ignored as a fundamental measure in Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. Now, certain types will kind of speak to how you respond under pressure, sure, but it's not a fundamental aspect of these things because they are not psychological instruments. Why does Myers-Briggs continue to exist? Because so many people know the language. The Enneagram is exploding in popularity. And I think all that's fine. I think it's fine as long as you approach them the way you have. I used to be this thing, now I'm this thing. These labels Help me navigate the world better today. What concerns me is when I hear people say your Myers-Briggs can't change. Well, according to the data, it does change. In fact, many people are basically unscorable. They can take the test five times in five minutes and get five different results. People say your Enneagram can't change. That is not a scientific claim. Absolutely no research supports that idea. People who say that are operating off of like personal anecdote. Kind of a personalized wisdom, that's fine. They're just scientifically incorrect. <laughs> Absolutely, your Enneagram type can change, and it doesn't just have to be the way between, you know, stress or <laughs> growth or whatever the Enneagram predicts you can change it to these two other types. No. I look a lot like a five, I look a lot like a two. I look a lot like a nine. Finally, one day, I just kind of picked one. Why do I call myself a nine? Because I'm uncomfortable with my anger. That's like the fundamental thing you see in the, the Enneagram nine personality type. So that's something I know I need to be aware of. It becomes useful in conversations with other people. It doesn't mean the Enneagram is in any way scientific. The skeptics in my audience, and there are many, go crazy every time I talk about the Enneagram. And I think it's because they're concerned that by talking about it, I'm lending scientific credence to the model. So let me be very clear. I don't find scientific credibility to the Enneagram, to Myers-Briggs, or to basically any personality typing system that exists today. Literally one, that I can't remember the name, has had any success in peer review. Now, there have been studies that have shown when people in group settings, organizational settings, study the Enneagram, group dynamics improve in the organization. Why? Because the navigating myth is helpful regardless of its scientific validity. Do you see what I'm saying? So these things are fine if you hold them lightly. One thing that concerns me is when Myers-Briggs, or especially the Enneagram, becomes the new religion for someone who has gone through a faith transition. It gives them a new grounding. You should not put the same confidence in the Enneagram that you once put in God. You should not. And the Enneagram instructors I work with the ones I talk to. If you think about Annie Diamond, who did uh, that course with us, you think about Ian Cron or Suzanne Stabil. The reason I like them so much is they understand and they communicate like what level the Enneagram is appropriate. Annie Diamond is a genius. She is an honest to God genius, and her ability to apply the Enneagram to help people grow personally and have better relationships is astounding and beautiful. She has invested deeply in understanding this map, this model, and she uses it to help people grow, to be more content, to be more satisfied, to accept themselves, and to accept other people. And in that context, I'm a huge fan of, of personality tests. We're a storytelling species. And I think the Enneagram, and yes, also Myers-Briggs, can help us tell better stories. They're just not science.
1: Hey, Science Mike. I think I have a pretty good question for you. So I was... Listening to a video you posted on Facebook talking about um, gun violence and how it's particularly a, a male issue and about how, um, like, loneliness and isolation and toxic masculinity contribute to that, I w- was curious to what extent you think biology might also play a role. Um, like, what's the science behind behind masculinity, too? Like, for instance... Um, testosterone being associated with increased aggression or lack of empathy. Uh, I guess it's kind of the nature nurture question, but I was just curious to what extent you think men might just be uh, innately more aggressive or if it's um, more social conditioning. Okay. I'd uh, be curious to hear what you have to say. Um, and uh, thanks for the show.
0: Well, let's start with something important. I don't think this question can be definitively answered today. <laughs> Um, let's see how let's how should we go about this? Well, one, there's a there's a, a longstanding kind of hypothesis uh, in psychology and evolutionary biology about the warrior male hypothesis. This is the idea that evolution has biologically primed men to be violent, to engage in conquest, to engage in inter and intragroup conflict, um, to establish hierarchy, all these things that it's it's a function of biology and um well one i guess everything is a function of biology for a biological organism <laughs> if you think about it uh but I, I don't think it's anywhere near that simple uh that is a very dominant uh theory today uh but it it is being called into question uh one is I saw one study um, effectively looking how testosterone was linked to dominance. And they found uh, among men in high social rank who have high testosterone, in fact, are very domineering. But among men who are lower in a hierarchy, if they have high testosterone, they're actually more submissive and cooperative than lower-ranking men who have lower testosterone. And this led these researchers to theorize that uh, what's going on is that testosterone doesn't create domination or violence, but an intense or heightened awareness of hierarchy, like almost a social awareness. Um fascinating. So this idea of the, you know, the warrior male hypothesis uh is starting to really become questioned because when you look at a an anthropological or historical examination of the species it's pretty widely accepted that in hunter-gatherer societies men don't dominate women nearly as much uh, because uh while men may do a lot of hunting, they they very much depend on the food that women gather. There's a mutual need. There's a necessary cooperation to keep people alive. But when you get to agriculture and herding, kind of upper body strength, you think about large animals and plows and all this sorts of things become very important. And then men become providers, and it creates an economic dependence for women. And once that happens... It can kind of unlock the worst uh, parts of male behavior, right? Because now women are in a position of dependency, of vulnerability, and it it changes male behavior. Uh, And so I think when you look at that, kind of the birth of patriarchy with agriculture, uh, you start to understand that it's very possible, in fact, I might even say probable, but that that's an overreach scientifically that uh, what's really going on is a self-reinforcing social training socialization um, and I just think more and more research is kind of opening the, that up for us um, but violence is an incredibly complex issue to dive into what we do know is that with proper social support uh, and when the, when men are, are taught that it's okay and safe to be emotionally open and when men engage in deep friendships, they do become less violent. So whether we're naturally, biologically more prone to violence or not, changing social conditions does in fact make men less violent. So I think there's an interesting discussion to have over time about how much biology pay, plays a role in male violence, but much more interesting to me is what research shows us makes men less violent. And that's that's emotional vulnerability, secure relationships, and economic security. There's a link between you know resource scarcity and male violence for sure. Um uh, you know, uh of the world's homicides happen, men commit them. Uh, Men start all of the wars today. Uh, But when you look at where that's coming from, it's coming from isolation and resource scarcity. And when we address those things, I don't think, I mean, I'm just one anecdote, but I don't think I'm any more violent than any woman. It doesn't mean that I'm not a man or masculine or, you know, biologically male, whatever that even means anymore. Um, It just means that I've been socialized to cooperate with other people and to enjoy that, to feel secure in relationships. And uh, I think that's the way forward for our entire species. Okay, our last question came in via email. Hey, Science Mike, this is more of a love question, but I want to approach it scientifically. I'm sorry if this seems a little Ask Abby. I love someone who will never love me back. The church and Christian literature has led me to believe that love is a choice. I do believe that. I believe that every day we need to wake up and choose to love others, our neighbors, our families, our spouses, especially when we don't feel like it. I am in love with this person who is not attracted to me and uninterested in me romantically. This has been going on for almost three years. Even though during this time I've been with other people, right now I am currently in a relationship with someone else, these feelings of love that I feel for this other person will not go away. To love someone who will never love you back is one of the most painful things And this is not my choice. I want these feelings to go away. Please tell me how. And please explain to me this whole love being a choice thing. Why would people choose to put themselves through this kind of pain? Well, first, thank you for writing me. And when we use the word love, we're describing an absolutely massive Set of feelings and behaviors. I love pizza. I love my children. I love my wife. I love my friends. And each of these loves is very distinct from one another, they're very different. I love Westworld on HBO, right? It's a very different love than I have for pizza, which is a very different love than I have for my children, which is a very different love than I have for my wife. So there are kind of sensations, there are feelings of love that we have that seem often to be very unattached from our decision-making process and our cognition. And then there are people we choose to invest in And our feelings may come along or they may not. So, to get a really great answer about what's happening with you in particular scientifically, you'd need to talk to a counselor, a social, you know, uh, a, a, a therapist, a psychologist. Um, I'd say look at a couple of patterns. Does does this happen often? Has it happened before where you fall in love with someone who doesn't love you back? If you're very young, this may be the first time. But sometimes consistently uh, falling for people who don't love you back can be a sign of insecure attachment as in attachment theory, meaning from birth to two years and from birth to 18 years old, There were factors in your life that determined your attachment style, and if you're in one of the insecure attachment types because of something in your childhood, unreturned love can actually be safe because it allows you to feel like you're in love with someone, Um, but they can't reject you because they already have rejected you, if that makes any sense. Um, And if that's the case, that's something you would want to work through with a therapist. Um... So I can't explain the love being a choice thing because that's a very oversimplified statement. Sometimes our choice influences who we have romantic feelings for. Now, one of the the primary drivers of human attraction is who you spend time with. So if there's this person that you've had feelings for for almost three years... And you spend time with them often, that's going to keep the brain, you know, in an attachment relationship of some kind with that person. So an easy way, as in easy to understand, not to implement, to get over these feelings is to reduce or eliminate the time you spend with this person and then allow your brain to go through the grief and separation anxiety of them not being in your life anymore. We tend to be most attracted to the person we spend the most time with, at least at first. So if you have the opportunity to speak with a professional, I would go through the story, I would bring up attachment theory, kind of look for patterns in your relationships, Uh, if failing that, just break contact with this person. If that's not possible, reduce contact as much as possible. But if you completely break contact in time, it is very likely that this bond you feel with this person will decrease and, in fact, could be eliminated completely. And... Um, studies have actually shown us that to be the recipient of unrequited love is, is painful as well. Uh, most people that are healthy wouldn't choose to have someone love them and not love them in return. Um, that, that feels bad. So This doesn't necessarily just hurt you. If the person you're in, in love with knows this, uh, and you're saying they're not interested in you romantically, so I don't know if you had a conversation, then that actually becomes like an emotional toil on them as well. So it may be best, it may be healthiest, if you just don't spend together time together for an extended period of time. And, and believe it or not, I've actually very much been in the position that you're in now. Uh, when I was much younger, <laughs> um Unrequited love was the norm for me. It made me question if I was good enough as a person, if I was desirable, if I would ever be desirable. So I know that this really hurts deeply. And so I don't want to make light of your experiences, and I hope I have not in my answer by having a pragmatic focus. But just know that whether this person loves you or not has nothing to do. If whether you are lovable at all, um, it, it has no relation. <laughs> Attraction's a highly individualized and variable sort of affair. And I understand that me saying that does nothing to your feelings, but if you learn to pay attention to your thought process and you learn that whenever you think of this person to stop yourself and say, I am desirable, to stop yourself and say, I can love someone else, over time you may find through this technique of cognitive behavioral therapy that your feelings do change, and you do get some relief. You may find, again, the best way forward in this one is to talk to a therapist. Um, and if, if that's like economically impossible for you, there's things like Talkspace where you can get more affordable access to conversations with a mental health professional. And uh, it may help you to unpack on a one-on-one basis this situation. Whatever happens, I wish you well, and I wish you a life of returned love. Well, there's another Ask Science Mike in the books. Thanks, Andrew Galucky for pre-production, Greg Nordine for producing the show, Jeb Botterford for writing the theme song. I've been your host, Ask Science Mike. Hit me up on social media if you feel like it, or leave a review on iTunes. Uh, that'd be lovely helps people find the show. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.